Happy New Year. We're glad you're here. Today we're going to continue in the study of the book of Luke. I personally, in my own life, try to get back to the Gospels every year um, because the Gospels are the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the Scripture's description of Jesus Himself. And I found that in my own life, I, I do well to come back to Jesus because it's so easy to get caught up in doing the right things and going to church and all of that other stuff and lose sight of the one about whom the story is told, and that is Jesus Himself. So I, I personally love going back to the Gospels on a regular basis, and quite frankly, Luke is a favorite of mine. It, it's, it's just a remarkable Gospel. As I said a few weeks ago, uh, Luke introduces it by saying this is, in essence, the result of his own study. He had heard about Jesus, and he decided as a physician and as a leader that he was going to get to the bottom of the story of this guy. So he, he did his own research to discover who Jesus was, and then as a result of his research, he wanted to pass it on to his friend Theophilus, and that's why the book is written. So it's a very intentional, very careful study of the life of Christ by a man who, as a result of this study, gave his life to Christ and accompanied Paul on the missionary journeys. Um, I, I love the organization of Luke. We don't have time to get into it all, but the, the subtlety of the way he's outlined the book is very intentional and very beautiful. He was a very smart guy who was led by the Spirit to tell us the story of Jesus so that we might trust in him. And so, uh, for me to spend a few weeks as we are this year beginning in Luke, we'll come back to it later. We're just going to do the first nine chapters. But it, to be reminded uh, that it's about Jesus is just a thing that's healthy for me. So, I hope it is for you. Today, we're in chapter 3. And we're going to go through chapter 4, verse 13. And this is the end of the introduction. In other words, I believe the whole section of 1 through 4.13 is, is Luke's introduction to Jesus because in it he wants us to tell about the circumstances of Jesus' birth and the things that inform who Jesus is. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, next week we'll turn to what Jesus actually did himself. But in these first section, he's describing the events of his birth and the characteristics of the things that occurred because he wants us to see that Jesus was not an ordinary person, his was not an ordinary birth, and God's plan for him was not an ordinary plan. If you remember, we started with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John, one we call John the Baptist, who was the prophet whom the, the Scriptures said would be the one who would foretell the coming Messiah, namely Jesus. And he comes back into the close of the introduction because his role is very significant in fulfilling Old Testament promises about one who would introduce the Messiah. And Luke wants us to know that he lives that out. And then he told us about the supernatural birth, that, that um, the same angel that came to Zechariah comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a son. And she says, whoa, 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 I've known no man. And he says, I know, this is going to be a miraculous son. Because Luke wants us to know that the very beginning of Jesus, his birth and everything else, is supernatural. It's not normal. It's significant. It, it's, it's a birth that indicates that God is doing something that he doesn't normally do. And then last week, we, we, or a few weeks ago, we, we saw the, the circumstances of his childhood when he was, when he was named and when uh, he was uh, the time of... Um, ceremonial cleansing and when he went to the temple as a 12-year-old. And these are more examples of people testifying that God has told them that this son Jesus, uh, son of Mary and Joseph, is someone unique and the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. And today he'll close that introduction by, I believe, introducing what Jesus will do, the very nature 
of what he's called to do in chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, 13. So if you have a Bible and you want to look, turn to uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. In the first section, he comes back to the story of the witness, namely John the Baptist. Verse 1, in the 50th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, home of Abilene Christian, uh, the, uh, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, whom we met in the first chapter, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. John had spent his life in the wilderness. If you ever go to Israel, the wilderness is, is south of Jerusalem. It is an area that is unbelievably desolate, Unbelie shockingly desolate. And that's where John had lived and served. And he went into all the country, <coughs> excuse me, around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And as it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John, in fulfillment of the promises that were made to Zechariah, is that prophet who is found in the wilderness. And then Luke quotes from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, God declares judgment not only on the people of Israel, but on all the nations surrounding them. Quite frankly, chapters 139 are not happy. They are, they are just rough in God's repeated statement of judgments for the sins of the world. And then in chapter 40, he suddenly says, comfort my people. Comfort my people. That, that they, have, they have paid what they needed to pay for their sins. Their judgment has been completed. In the context, it seems to be that, that this captivity they had experienced, both the northern and southern kingdom in Assyria and Babylon, has accomplished God's judgment on the people as a nation. And now he's introducing them to the fact that he will bring them back to the people. But, but, but the Scriptures use Isaiah 40 to indicate that something else is going on here. It's a picture of God's comfort in the ultimate sense. And then he describes in the passage that's quoted by Luke, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, make way, prepare the way for the Lord. Um, and, and he wants us to see that the far fulfillment for that voice, the first century fulfillment of that voice is John the Baptist, that John the Baptist is the one who will come and prepare the way for the Lord in fulfillment of what God had said to Zechariah at his birth and, and in fulfillment of what Isaiah 40 is pointing to of God's salvation coming to the people. He said, John is the voice, scream and prepare the way for the Lord. And then he goes into this picturesque language of, of the way being cleared, every obstacle being removed, because when the Lord comes, there is no obstacle that can stand before him. And what is John's message in preparing the way for the Lord? It's a message of repentance. Repentance is an interesting word. It means essentially just to turn. It's turned from facing one way to facing another way. It can be defined in the New Testament as a change of one's mind, a 180-degree change of one's thinking. In this context, I think it's particularly directed to the people of Israel. 
Because the people of Israel, he will go on to say, you make a big deal out of being children of Abraham. Don't you know God can make children of Abraham out of rocks? In other words, that's no big deal. You make a big deal out of all your religion, but all your religion doesn't matter. In other words, these were people that came and were really proud of their religiosity, and he says, you know, you, you need to change because your religiosity is just not enough. Being a child of Abraham is not enough. The message is you need to change your mind towards something else that is what God intended you to be. So he goes on to describe that. Verse 7, John said to the crowds who were come out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, he had clearly not been to a conference on being a seeker-sensitive church. You, know, you snakes in the grass. Uh, who told you to escape getting wiped out? It's not a warm and cuddly kind of message. Um, but remember, these are highly religious people who took great pride in all their religiosity. And he said, what, what caused you to figure out that you were wrong? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Change your mind. Turn from, from taking pride in your own goodness to placing your hope and pride in the goodness of Christ. Turn from your pride to your humility. Turn from your own salvation by your own goodness to depending on the salvation that God alone can offer. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we, are here, we have Abraham as your father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The God, judgment of God is about to come on you as a people. So the crowd asked, verse 10, then what should we do? John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some of the soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly, were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah, the promised one, the king, the fulfillment of all those covenants. And he said, I baptize you with water, but one is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. With many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. He speaks this gospel of repentance, and the, the people that are coming out, all of these Jewish people say, well, what, what do you want us to do? We, I think by inference, we thought we were doing everything we were supposed to do, right? We go to the temple, we offer our tithes, we, you know, we do all the nice, it's, we, we, we're religious people. He said, that's not what it's about. It's about a hard thing. You need to change your heart. And they said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, if someone around you is cold and needs a coat, give them a coat. If someone around you is hungry, give them food. In your work, don't take advantage of helpless people. 
He'll say in the Sermon on the Mount, treat others the way you want to be treated. It's interesting. You, you could read this and say, okay, well, then salvation, pleasing God is just by doing all the good things. That's the whole point, right? I'm supposed to do everything good, and then that pleases God. Well, there are several problems with that. First of all, the rest of Scripture teaches that, that we're not capable of it, and that's not adequate. But even more so, our own experience tells us that none of us can do that. We, we have little moments of fame, but the rest of the time we fall back into our own selfishness, right? Remember, he's speaking to people who are very religious, who do all the, who do, if I can say it this way, who do church. And he says, it's not about doing church. It's about experiencing the grace of God and then giving that grace to others. When he says help the poor, what's he saying? Help people that can't do anything for you. When he says respond to the needy, what's he doing? He says do for others what God did for you. He met your neediness from his abundance. It's not that doing good saves you. It's that that is a reflection of what it is to respond to the gospel of Christ, to respond to grace by giving grace to others. It's, it's a reflection that we truly understand how to relate to God, and that's based on what He's done for us, not based on what we do for Him. We have the same issue today, right? It's, it's easy to fall into it's all about doing good and going to church. You know, I'm, I'm religious. You know, I go to church on Sunday. I give a certain percentage in the offering plate into charities, and I figure it very carefully to make sure it's only a certain percentage because I don't want to give too much. But and and then and then you know I I try to do all the religious things. I, I may vote a certain way because of my faith. I, I do all of these things to demonstrate my faith. And 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 John would say, whoa whoa whoa, you're missing it. It's about a heart thing. It's a, it's about experiencing the mercy and grace of God and then responding to that in faith so that you can extend mercy and grace to others that God wants us to be different, not just religious. Interestingly, when you study the history of this church, this church was started 65 years ago by people who went to church. Going to church just wasn't enough for them. They said, we want something more, not condemning other churches. I'm just saying at that time, there was this heartfelt need to do something more than just going to church. It was about, we want something that's genuine, that's rooted in the Scriptures. We want something that's real, that's rooted in the Spirit. We want something that's effective, that's designed to proclaim the gospel to others. Because just doing church, just being religious is not enough. The religious people of Jesus' day were the ones that he was worked the hardest over. These are the ones to whom he said, repent. Repent. Change. Treat others the way God has treated you. So people said, maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the promised one. Now, in Judaism, the Messiah was the one who would deliver the nation of Israel according to the covenants and, and restore the nation of Israel to its political power. So they're thinking, hey, this is great. I mean, he's preaching a hard gospel, but if, if he defeats Rome and we get power again, that would be cool. So maybe he's the Messiah. John says, no, I'm not even worthy to untie the Messiah's sandals. In ancient Judaism, it, it was taught 
that even a Jewish slave was above untying someone's sandals. That was such a nasty job, you couldn't even ask your slave to do that. And John said, relative to him, I'm not even worthy of being his slave. Because I'm baptizing you with water. John's baptism is interesting because we, scholars have debated, where do you get that? Is, is it, what baptism is it? My personal opinion is it's rooted in the ceremonial washings that were associated with the sin offering in the book of Leviticus. You read the first six chapters of the book of Leviticus, I know many of you were memorizing them just this morning. And when you read those, it describes the different offerings that were made. And the sin offering, which was specifically for my intentional sins, there were washings that are associated with that. And because his message is repentance, I think he's alluding to that with his baptism. Others believe he just made it up. He said, we're going to have a baptism because it describes the washing that each of us needs, the cleansing that each of us needs, because each of us is broken, right? I mean, it's just us friends. Can we stop pretending? Can we all admit we're broken? Can we all admit we don't live up to even the standards we hold other people to? Can we all admit that we could do the happy dance just because we know no one knows the things we think, much less sees all the things we do? The reality is that, that we're all broken. We all have need for mercy and grace. And, and, and Judaism at that time was oftentimes a, a, a dry orthodoxy, a religiosity. They, they, if you will, they went to church, they gave their tithe, they did all the right things, but, but, but it was all about their righteousness. And he says, you've got to repent, you've got to turn to something that's different, that's rooted in humility and rooted in your need for God's grace, and you'll demonstrate it by the, giving others grace and mercy the way God has given it to you. And that's what the Messiah will do. So John lives out the promise of the witness that's promised in the book of Isaiah at the end of God's judgment. Then in verses 21 through 38, he gives Jesus lineage his, to uh, who he came from. Uh, verses 21 and 22 are the most significant. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. The other gospels say, Jesus came and said, I want to be baptized. And John said, whoa, 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 I, I can't baptize you because John knew who he was. Jesus said, no, this fulfills all righteousness. This identifies me with your message of repentance because that's the message people need to hear. And as Jesus was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Remember John said, he will baptize you with the Spirit. I baptize you with water because he himself was baptized by the Spirit. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. It's kind of the culmination of the introduction of the book of Luke because he wants us to know with all the other stories of the beginning of Jesus' life, the thing you need to most know is that he is the son of God. That's what the virgin birth is about. He is the son of God. That's why the angels came to announce him, because it's announcing the Son of God. He is ultimately the Son of the Father. He is ultimately the Son of God. That's who he is. 
And then the next few verses, he gives his human lineage. Now, there are two genealogy, major genealogies. I had someone come up and say there's a third genealogy, and I didn't know what he said. But anyway, there are two primary genealogies, the one in Matthew and the one in Luke, and they're different. Don't come to me and tell me, did you know they're different? Yes, I know they're different. There are multiple opinions about the differences. Some believe that Matthew's is the genealogy of Joseph, his earthly father, whereas Luke is the genealogy of Mary, his, his birth mother. Uh, others believe Matthew is the formal genealogy of the succession of the kings, whereas Luke is the informal genealogy of his actually birth lineage. Both would have been important in establishing him as Messiah. I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why there are two genealogies, but I will tell you this. Most of us believe that Luke had Matthew when he wrote the book. So I think he knew what he's doing. There is an explanation. But even if you don't buy that, if the genealogy keeps you away from trusting in Christ, um, I don't get that. Not based on everything else he did. And we're not going to memorize the genealogy today. I, I, of course, I know many of you will during the course of this week. But I want you to point out, I want to point out to you some of the key names that come up. There is David. Why? Because he's the son of David, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant as the promised Messiah. There's Abraham because he's the son of Abraham, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, who, how God would bless all the nations through Abraham's seed. And it ultimately goes down to Adam. By the way, I don't believe this is the direct lineage. There are huge gaps in this genealogy, in my opinion. It's not saying that this had to be this father of this person. But Adam is significant because it shows that not only is he the son of God, he is truly the son of man. He's fully God and fully man. It's what theologians call the hypostatic union of deity and humanity. He had to be both. He had to be fully human in order to be a substitute, to live out what you and I couldn't do, but he had to be fully God to be perfect. And Luke is demonstrating both by these statements. First, that he is the Son of God at his baptism, demonstrated his baptism, and the Son of Man is demonstrated by his genealogy. Chapter 4. Where this is all going is a test. We, we call it the temptation of Christ. Look with me at verse 1 because it points to what his ultimate ministry will be. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Remember, John said he baptizes with the Spirit. His, everything about Jesus' life is done in union with the Spirit. The, we, we understand the deity, the Godhead, to be three persons in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. John explains that in his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. John is much more theological. He's not caught up in the details of the birth. In order. Instead, he wants us to understand the underpinning, the theology of Jesus' birth. And he said he's fully God and fully man. He came unto his own, and his own didn't receive him. But to as many as believed in them, to him he gave, them he gave the right to become children of God, born not of the flesh, not of the blood, but born of God. John wants us to understand that that. Uh, the theology of why he came, and he came, according to John, to fulfill all that we needed by being fully man and fully God and bringing salvation to the earth. 
So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And the wilderness is breathtaking in its barrenness. And there for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And at the end end of them, he was very hungry. Uh, the 40 days, I think, is, is, alludes to the 40 days of the nation of Israel in the wilderness when they failed God miserably. Jesus, part of what Luke wants us to see in God's plan for Jesus is intended to demonstrate is that Jesus does what Israel can't do. Israel couldn't be religious enough to accomplish the will of God. Jesus is what God desires, and in his 40 days he went without food, and yet he will accomplish the will of God. He's tempted by Satan throughout that time. We only have a little glimpse of what happened with that. Verse 3, the devil said to him, so if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor because it's given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. There's so much in this because we get a glimpse of the power of Satan. According to Scripture, going all the way back to possibly the oldest written book of the Bible, the book of Job, Satan has amazing authority in this present earth. Now, the New Testament says God restrains him so that he can't do all the evil he would. But the fact is that that we live in a world in which Satan's fingers are everywhere. One of the privileges I have had as a pastor is to sit with people who are experiencing unbelievable hardship, whether personal through illness or death or depression or whatever. And one of the things we point out is that, that the Scripture says we live in a world controlled by evil. You see it in governments, you see it in the way we relate to each other, in all arenas of life. There is always evil. It's a harsh world. That's because Satan's got a lot of stroke. And he brags to Jesus, you you just worship me and I'll I'll let you have some of these kingdoms. Similarly, what he does to in the book of Job in his conversations about Job, We see this glimpse of Satan's power. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, don't put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all the tempting, he left him until an opportune time. What's the point of that? Remember, it's an introduction of what Jesus will do. And what is Jesus doing? He's taking on Satan. From the beginning of the Genesis story, the Satan is portrayed by the snake, comes and, and tells the first man and the first woman that God's plan isn't the best for them that they instead will pursue the way of man, if you will, human's way, they'll, things will be better, they'll be like God. And because they listen to Satan, they, they bring evil into the world. It's demonstrated in the church curse in Genesis chapter 3. And that evil is, is visible in all of life, isn't it? 
Every day when you read the paper, every day when you listen to the news, let's be honest, every day when you look at your own heart, you see evil. None of us lives up to the standards to which we hold others, much less the standard we hold ourselves to. All of us know what that evil is. It is the world of Satan. It is, is the alternative to obedience and serving God. It is instead the serving myself, grasping myself. And Jesus is portrayed here as taking Satan on mano a mano. Satan gives him his best shot. Jesus is hungry, he's weakened, he's alone, and Satan throws all that he has at Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He defeats him by the very word of God. And what does that say? The ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, will be a battle against all of the evil that was introduced all the way back in Genesis. Jesus has come according to the book of Luke, to address the evil that we all experience, the brokenness of the world around us and the brokenness in ourselves. And Luke wants us to know that from the very beginning, Jesus won. He conquers the evil. He'll first conquer it through his life, his miracles that demonstrate his power over the affairs of the world, but he'll ultimately conquer it in his death on the cross when he takes on the sins of the world and shows his victory by his resurrection. Luke wants us to know that Jesus' ministry is not just to be a demonstration of what it is to be a good prophet, what good religion looks like. Je Jesus has come to win the battle over all the darkness and, darkness and brokenness in the world around us as well as in ourselves. He is not a party to which you align yourself. He is a Savior and a God to whom you give yourself. Luke wants us to see that all the yearnings that you and I have for wholeness, for peace, for goodness, for healing, all of those are met in the one who conquers Satan and evil and darkness and death. The rest of the book of Luke will be a, a quiet and steady demonstration of his power over all of that brokenness and all of that evil, culminating his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. He came to win. And his children, we join him in a battle against that which is evil and wrong in ourselves, by the power of the Spirit, and in the world around us. We are called to share in his ministry of doing what he did in our lives and extending it to others. And we can do it because we know that he ultimately will win. I don't understand everything about the book of Revelation, but I understand this, the good guy wins. And Jesus begun that victory over death at the cross, and he will complete that victory in the end times. And his ministry is a battle with all of that evil. We are living in a spiritual battle. That's why it can be so hard. That's why the world can be so dark. Because the evil one is really good at what he does, but, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Luke wants us to know that this Jesus, this one whose birth was announced by angels, 
This one whose birth was supernatural from its beginning, the one who all the smart guys recognized as something really different. This one, Jesus, is the very Son of God. He is God's solution for the brokenness of the world, and He will, he will bring healing and peace and forgiveness. But we have to change. Instead of relying on our own goodness, like the Jews of the first century, we've got to rely on His. Instead of trying to overcome evil in ourselves, we have to lean into what He accomplished on the cross. And otherwise, in other words, instead of our own goodness being enough, we have to entrust ourselves to His goodness alone. We have to put our faith and hope in Him. Why? Because we're not good enough. We're just not. But Luke wants us to see that he is. 